0: This episode is brought to you by Audi Canada. The Canadian Medical Association has partnered with Audi Canada to offer CMA members preferred incentive on select vehicle models. Purchase any new qualifying Audi model and receive an additional cash incentive based on the purchase type. Details of the incentive program can be found at audiprofessional.ca. Explore the full line of vehicles available to suit your lifestyle. The Audi driving experience is like no other.
1: When women get paid less than men for roughly equivalent work, that's known as the gender pay gap. It's an issue that's prevalent in most of the workforce, despite our awareness of the problem and decades of activism to try to remedy it. How does the gender pay gap play out in medicine? I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Executive Editor for CMAJ. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Michelle Cohen and Dr. Tara Kieran, who have co-authored an analysis article on the gender pay gap in Canadian medicine which is published in CMAJ. I've reached Dr. Karen in Toronto and Dr. Cohen in Brighton, Ontario. Welcome. Hi. Hi, thank you. I want to start off with having you each tell us about yourself. So starting with uh,
2: Michelle, where are you based and what is your position? I'm a family doctor in Brighton, which is a small town in Southeastern Ontario. Um, I also teach in the Family Medicine Department at Queen's and I write and do advocacy work around health policy and equity in healthcare and science communication.
0: And you, Tara? I'm a family doctor at the St. Michael's Hospital Academic Family Health Team in downtown Toronto. Uh, I'm where I'm also a researcher. Um, I also have a leadership role at the university trying to lead quality improvement for Department of Family and Community Medicine. Um, A lot of my research really relates to understanding quality in primary care and improving it. So let's start off by looking at the evidence. You've looked
1: at um, studies that have shown a gender pay gap in medicine, and what
2: did you find? So the gender pay gap is persistent across multiple different payment models and can be demonstrated in multiple different types of healthcare systems, including internationally. We see it between different specialties in that male dominated specialties tend to overall have higher payments, but also within a given specialty, there are differences between what generally what men and women make in that specialty. Um, Looking more deeply into the gap, we see that it's present at all stages in a medical career. Um, and present in the community environment and in the academic setting as well. So the fact that it's so pervasive is not actually that surprising once you start to piece together all the different overlapping factors that work to create the gender pay gap. You said it works throughout the career.
1: So are we saying that residents of the same grade, if they're men and women, there's
2: there's a difference in what they're paid? I wouldn't expect that we would see it at the trainee level where the uh, salaries relate specifically to the level that uh, someone is at in their postgraduate year. I think it would be interesting to look at moonlighting, which is allowed in some jurisdictions, as far as I am aware. Um, But there is American research showing that in the early parts of the postgraduate career, so in the early parts of an independent practice, uh, that there is a difference, pretty much right from the beginning. So this is American data. It would be very interesting to see how that translates into Canadian data but we've found that a lot of these sorts of gaps are actually translatable across different payment models. You did look more closely at Canadian numbers, and what did you find there?
0: So I just wanted to acknowledge that we're having this conversation about the gender pay gap in Canadian medicine, Um, but at the same time, we as physicians are relatively privileged members of society and, of course, earn more um, than most other people in society, including most other healthcare professionals. Um, So that's like a a broader societal issue, but at the same time, um, important to acknowledge as we're having this conversation, we do need to contextualize it. So when we looked at the Canadian data, um, it really confirmed that the gender pay gap exists and it's a problem within specialties and it's a problem across specialties. So to start, um, we looked at specialties uh, across Canada and sort of the mean gross payments and the mean net income earned uh, within a specialty. And we saw that specialties where there was higher net income, those specialties had fewer female docs than average. Conversely, in specialties where in general, the mean net income was among the lower end, those specialties had higher numbers of female doctors. Um, And so those specialties, for example, include pediatrics, psychiatry, and family medicine. Now, at the same time, we looked within specialties and we saw that um, within a specialty, there were even some differences. So for example, um, within family medicine, uh, men earned 30% more and within specialists overall, men earned 40% more. And within every single specialty, men earned more than women. What are some of the male-dominated specialties that you were
1: referring to in the beginning?
0: Yeah, so some of those include ophthalmology, cardiology, um, diagnostic radiology, uh, and cardiothoracic surgery. Those are examples. And interestingly, some of the, so those are the ones that were generally physicians are being paid more, and they generally have lower proportions of female doctors.
1: So most physicians in Canada get paid on a fee-for-service model, but this is changing, and it's possible people have said that it's possible that women just work less or um, less efficiently than men. Is this the case?
2: So the fee-for-service system in Canada is commonly used to defend the gender neutrality or supposed gender neutrality of Canadian medicine and remuneration in Canadian medicine, and so this, uh, this argument or counterpoint is often made that, well, the schedule of benefits doesn't include gender, so how can it possibly be a reflection or how can it possibly be part of the gender pay gap? Uh, it must, if you're, you're making less money, it must mean that you're billing less codes. However, this assumption um, is based on, on or your, the assumption that one makes is that men and women are billing roughly equal proportions of roughly the same of the same codes, and that really the only difference between them is the volume of work that they do but really when you break it down a little bit more and start looking at the types of codes that get billed, um, as, as some, some have recently uh, looked at res- with respect to OHIP billing in, uh, amongst surgeons in Ontario, we see that women tend to, on the whole, bill less lucrative codes and they tend to bill them at lower volumes. Um, this applies to both procedural codes and non-procedural codes, so it's actually a pervasive problem even outside of, of surgery or procedural work, throughout the fee-for-service system. When it comes to the number of hours that men and women work, women do tend to work less hours. However, the the differences in the hours between men and women isn't enough to explain the uh, volume or the amount of the uh, gender pay gap. So, you know, we see an effect um, in work that's been, we see in, in research that's been done in BC amongst family doctors, we see a difference of only a few hours per week. Yet there's quite a large gap um, in that research, I think that was 2017, um, comparing the work that, that the, the remuneration in, uh, for family doctors in BC um, amongst men and women. Um, with respect to starting a family, this is often a, a sort of uh, an excuse, I guess, or a or common counterpoint um, to support the notion that women are making less because they're working less. Uh, The assumption is often made that women are making a choice to work less, women are making a choice to start families. However, when you look over the length of a career, there will be a dip around typically around the the, like when someone is in their 30s or so um, in women's hours, which can be assumed to be starting a family or the, the kind of intense needs of a young family. Um, However, that is a temporary dip, and generally around the days you look longitudinally, uh, women's hours will bounce back up to pretty much where they were before. We know that the amount of work that women do that is unpaid at home is quite a bit larger than the amount that men do. So the displacement in hours between what men and women do, on the one hand, women are doing a significant amount of unpaid work in the home that men don't tend to do, even in dual doctor couples. And even in situations where there aren't small children in the house, women do still tend to do more domestic work overall, even without small children or with no children around or in a situation where children might be grown or out of the house or or less needy of that care. Um, And then when you look at the amount of the difference in hours of paid work, women actually don't do significantly less than men, not enough to explain or account for the amount of pay inequity that, that, that we see in the data.
1: It seems like whenever you try to look for an obvious explanation for why women are paid less overall than men in medicine, it's difficult to find one. Now, you talked a little bit about procedural billing codes versus non-procedural billing codes. And um, I I guess that some people might argue that procedures are billed at a higher rate than non-procedures. And say, for example, if you work in family medicine, you can bill for fewer procedures than you can if you're an ophthalmologist, for example, but you did notice that there is a difference um, within specialties and uh, between specialties
2: that bill for lots of procedural codes. What did you find there? So even in family medicine, um, we, we see that women tend to do less procedural work as well. So female family doctors compared to male family doctors tend to spend more time with patients, tend to address more of the psychosocial issues, which we know uh, are time consuming, much more time consuming than a procedure, for example. And, And just tend to as well, patients as well tend to expect that female physicians and female surgeons on the whole, spend more time with them, explain things more to them and provide more emotional and psychosocial support. Um, So the the expectation is on women to practice this way and women do on the whole tend to practice this way, whether in procedural or non-procedural specialties. Um, And we know that in a fee-for-service system, volume is incentivized. So if you're able to do a procedure quickly and stack multiple procedures together throughout your day, you're going to generally make more money than somebody who is spending more time uh, billing lower volume counseling codes or or other codes or spending more time and billing less codes in general. So even within a specialty, we see those kinds of differences that that tend to push women towards uh, more complicated psychosocial type counseling work and patient education work rather than higher volume procedural work. So that is certainly part of the difference we see in in payments within a given specialty as well as between specialties.
0: I think we can also even, um, you know, look, if we look just at surgery, Um, Dosa and Baxter published a really interesting article looking at the gender pay gap just within surgery. Um, They found, for example, that uh, female surgeons were disproportionately operating on women and that these procedures were often remunerated at lower levels. Um, And so in our paper, we talk about some of the differences in some of the codes. So for example, surgeons in Ontario are paid $50.90 for an incision under general anesthetic of a vulvar abscess. Um, but $99 uh, for the same procedure in a scrotal abscess. Um, And so these differences within the fee-for-service schedule of benefits uh, really are in itself uh, suggestive of systemic bias um, within our society.
1: That's truly incredible that um, that women's procedures are billed at a lower rate than than men's procedures. I mean, it's a stark example, and it's um, probably one of a few, though. Do you, in, in your work, manage to get to the root of the gender differences in
0: pay? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think, you know, what I'd say is that at the root of the gender pay gap are discrimination and sexism um, and discrimination that women face throughout their careers. And that's really rooted in the history of medicine. Um, if we think back um, to medicine as it was 100 years ago, I mean, this was a profession where women weren't allowed to practice. Um, and so we've got these institutional legacies of sexism in a medical school, and these are been carried through to clinical arrangements, our healthcare organizations, and the fee schedule itself. You know, as an example, uh, even when we think about how our medical students are taught, um, often uh, you know they are unfortunately here a hidden curriculum where. Um, they're subtly and sometimes overtly encouraged to go into certain specialties um, because these specialties seem to be, you know, ones that would be quote, better for women. Maybe because they are thought to be have better uh, lifestyle um, or be quote less demanding. Um, but you know, really, you shouldn't have a preceptor make those kinds of judgments so early in your career. Um, and then even once women are, are graduated, I mean, there there's um, so much unconscious bias uh, that is part of recruitment and hiring. We know that there are more men um, that are in leadership roles. That means that they are paid more. Um, But often that also means that they're controlling who is recruited and how that recruitment is done. And I think probably informally, often um, their mentorship and support networks are disproportionately supporting other men. You know, I think some of these things, unfortunately, can become almost self-perpetuating. Uh, there's been research showing that women are more likely to suffer from imposter syndrome, and so have lower salary expectations. But at the same time, they themselves are less likely to have a higher start- starting salary, or they're they're more likely to have a lower starting salary than men, and that, in its fact, anchors these low expectations that they might have. Uh, so it can become almost a self-perpetuating. Uh, systemic bias. Um, and I think I would add too that uh, our negotiation
2: committees and leadership within our medical associations also tends to be historically and currently male dominated. So when we think about why do we have these differences in fee codes between procedures performed on men and procedures performed on women, or why do we overvalue codes that tend to be billed by men, where we undervalue codes that tend to be billed by women, I think to some degree it is because we don't have uh, proper representation on our negotiation committees. We don't have uh, the voice of female physicians and that representation of the kinds of work they do, and as well the patients that they work with, because we know that there is a, a sort of self-selection where women patients tend to be seen more by women doctors. So that kind of, that lack of representation also represents um, the sort of lack of representation of female patients and, and the kind of health care that women need as well.
1: Now, I'm curious as, as female physicians, your own experience, like what has stood out for you as the main driver or your overwhelming experience of this particular issue in your own
0: careers? I experienced things early in my career that I thought were just about me. But now I realize that they're really actually part of a broader pattern, um, a societal pattern, and, and that they're probably representative or emblematic of what other women also have faced. Um, you know, Early in my career, I had a leadership role, and I felt like I wasn't being paid uh, fairly. And um, I went to my boss asking uh, for a raise, um, but was made to feel badly about it. Um, later on, fast forward a few years, I've seen male colleagues advocate for themselves more effectively to actually get raise, a raise more confidently and, and not being made to feel badly. Um, another time, you know, I, I myself have three children and uh, during one of uh, my maternity leaves, um, just before I left on maternity leave, uh, I had a, a contract position Um, and that contract position was renewable yearly. Um, But I found out later after my maternity leave that the agency that I was working for let the contract lapse while I was on maternity leave in a way that they weren't able to renew it when I came back. So in effect, because I had gone on maternity leave, I'd lost an additional year of my contract that um, my counterparts had continued to, to receive who were older and male and, and didn't uh, go on maternity leave? Um, even recently in my career, you know, I, I can think of a time when I was contemplating a career advancement and um, you know had a senior leader question whether you know you know did I have enough time to take that on? Am I sure I want to do this? Um, that male colleague said, you know, I, I know you have kids; it can be busy, um, but it was an important advancement opportunity for me. Um, and I knew would have uh, would was related to me potentially securing more pay for myself later on, um, and so I think these are just examples from my own career um, that have stood out to me and that I've reflected on partly in writing this paper. Um, and I'm I'm guessing that many women have stories like these, and and many women feel that these stories are about them. Um, but really I think it's important for us to have these transparent conversations and share these stories because they're part of broader patterns in society that we need to change.
2: I think I agree very much with Tara about that we often think these experiences are just us. I think that um, one of the things I appreciate most about social media and the kind of um, organization and and community that we've been able to create on social media amongst these informal groups of doctors just talking about their lives is an appreciation for how those problems do reflect um, persistent patterns and and larger patterns than simply one personal experience so you know from my personal experience when i was in school um so pre before i had done any of my match matching or knew what specialty i wanted to go into I was assigned to spend a day with a surgeon learning a particular set of of procedures that I was interested in. I was considering that surgical specialty, and the surgeon, um, from the very first moment I walked in the room, asked me if I was married, asked me why I wasn't married, and if my mother was putting pressure on me to get married, and why wasn't she, and then spent basically the entire day lecturing me on the importance of having kids as soon as possible so that I wouldn't end up. Um, an unhappy doctor with no children, or a lonely woman with no children, or, or whatever he thought the risk was. Um, and ultimately, he taught me nothing about the procedure that I was there to see. You know, I was there to, to learn a specific set of, of skills, and he spent the entire day giving me uh, sexist and unasked-for advice. Um, um, that was highly personal and really none of his business. And and at the time, I just thought of it as an an encounter that happened to me. And it took me many years to appreciate that that is actually part of a greater set of patterns of sexist discrimination that occurs to many, many women. And it's only hearing other stories from other women that I was able to appreciate that that is a broad pattern and that that still happens. It wasn't even that long ago, but I hear these kinds of stories from trainees over and over and over again. Um, So I I do appreciate how we are able to make these stories uh, more universal and, and, and appreciate that there's a broader pattern to all of them than simply just one individual difficult experience in med school. So
1: given all these problems and systemic problems, historical problems, what can be done
2: at this point
1: to try to fix the issue?
2: So because it's a multifactorial problem, we need uh, many different approaches from the different stakeholders. So everyone from the government to our medical associations to hospitals and healthcare organizations to medical schools uh, and individual physicians and individual practices all have a role to play. Um, so first and foremost, our medical associations need to commit to closing the pay gap. So at this point, we have not really seen really any advocacy or, or even uh, exploration of the gender pay gap in Canada. Um, as of this morning, August 18th, the OMA released a report on the gender pay gap, which is the first of its kind in Canada first medical association to really dig into the data on gender pay inequities and, and try to present some sort of uh, solution to it. I haven't had a chance to look at it today. I think it just came out a couple of hours ago, um, but that's certainly a, a start. To make that kind of step to, to actually look at it. it seems as though the other medical associations have not really appreciated that it's a problem even though membership is approaching 50 percent at this point we're pretty much at gender parity when it comes to uh canadian medicine so our medical associations are really letting down roughly half of their membership by not addressing this issue at all um as well we need some transparency in the data we we need to be able to make accurate assessments of the gender pay gap and really pinpoint where it's happening, where it's happening most, and, and what we can do, and the more data, the better. Uh, the, better and the more transparency around physician income, the better. We should also move past simply just our binary impression of, of gender. It's not simply a man-woman issue. We really have almost no data on, on the, any of the situation, work life, and, and pay, and personal life, professional life uh, for non-binary physicians. And two, we should be looking at other types of discrimination as well. So we should be trying to approach this problem from an intersectional perspective and looking at things like uh, other demographic issues, such as race, uh, disability, country of origin, language, and and other issues that might be affecting how physicians are
0: paid. I mean, we talked about the root causes, some of it being discrimination and sexism. And so I think to, we think it's important for organizations to commit to having their members take part in anti-oppression training. And this would serve um, to address gender pay gap issues, but also pay gaps related to race, disability and other forms of discrimination. You know, one thing that um, I've thought a lot about relates to um, standard fair and transparent hiring and promotion practices. I work in an academic center, and you know our own academic center has noted how many of the researchers have been men in the past, and uh, you know it hasn't really been transparent necessarily how when somebody comes on in a research uh, capacity, what kind of support um, they're getting is that standard throughout or is it individually negotiated? Um, who is uh, being uh, recruited and how are they getting to know of this? How how are new positions even being advertised? Um, Is it through informal networks or are we putting out a formal call? So more and more now, I think universities and academic institutions are recognizing that we do need to put out formal calls because if we don't, um, what happens is uh, the informal networks are more likely to be male and more men apply. We also need to make sure that there are, uh, that there's, diversity on the actual hiring committee um, and that the people on the hiring committee of course have taken some anti-oppression training so standard fair and transparent hiring is really important for faculties of medicine for uh, hiring of clinical positions um, and it's also important as Michelle said within our medical associations and government when we think about who's actually going to be on the negotiating table um, because when we see, we've seen that our fee structure itself is uh, reflective of systemic bias and I think one way to help to undo that is to ensure that we have diverse representation on the committees that are actually negotiating for us.
2: Absolutely and I'll just add to at least in Ontario over the past few years there's been a lot of debate around relativity which is the rebalancing of the relative payments made to to the specialties. Uh, The idea being that over time, some specialties have started to break away from the average and are making a significant amount and some specialties are being left behind and that relatively for equal work are not making the same amount. Um, And that's been a very controversial and contentious process going through that. And I was disappointed when we did go through that process to not have any sort of gender-based analysis or any discussion of gender being applied. And I, I don't think that we can solve the relativity problem or really meaningfully dig into the relativity problem until we appreciate that there is a gender component
0: as well. In our paper, we also talk about being more active in actually trying to sponsor and mentor women to take on leadership roles, no matter... Uh, you know whether that's um, in government or medical associations or in faculties or hospital clinical positions um, and we've talked about when we talked about the root causes just you know societal issues um, and this includes sort of women's domestic roles and there is work to be done as a profession in supporting women um, around child rearing and their domestic responsibilities and so probably the most the most basic is really supporting Um, maternity and parental leave programs. Um, I think both Michelle and I could speak from experience juggling work and kids is is tricky and we can make that less tricky by ensuring that at least at the beginning of life, we're supporting people um, to to bond with their kids to be there for their kids, um, but then also ensuring that that's not impacting the position that they're uh, that they'd like to have later on in their career. Hopefully, even individual partners can recognize this as an issue and support women who want to lean in more at work um, by having their partners lean in more at home. The gender pay gap at its root is a complex issue and so, of course, um, requires um, multifactorial solutions. And so we can't cover all of these in the context of the podcast, but we do try um, and get at a range of solutions that different uh, parties um, would be able to act on within the article. Now,
1: I'm interested in the, um, the global perspective on this problem. You've, you've discussed a very North American-focused evidence base and, um, and given solutions for what Canada is doing. What are other countries doing that could serve as
2: good examples for our position? So most of our data on the gender pay gap in medicine comes from the U.S. and from the U.K., and those do seem to be the countries that are making the greatest strides when it comes to a, an approach to close the gender pay gap. So medical associations in the U.S. and the U.K. have not only accepted the existence of the gender pay gap, which is not quite where we're at in Canada um, from the broad perspective of all the medical associations. So, American and and British medical associations have not only accepted the existence of the gender pay gap and produced reports to that effect, they've also committed to closing it and have put out a number of policy directives. In the UK as well, the NHS uh, produces data on the gender pay gap annually, so every year they're producing data, giving everybody an update on where the country is at in terms of the gender pay gap in medicine. The the British government has also commissioned a multi-year review of the gender pay gap that started in 2018, and there's expected to be some solutions uh, suggested. Uh, Research from Stanford shows that when some of these policies that the American Medical Association has recommended, when some of those policies are implemented, that does actually lead to the reduction of gender bias in the medical faculty and higher satisfaction scores in the female faculty as well. So we do see that when these policies are applied, in the early data, we see some benefits, we see some evidence that they are working. So Canada has a lot of ground to make up when it comes when we compare ourselves to our peer countries, particularly the US and the UK. Um, we, we see a similar situation with respect to a persistent gender pay gap throughout the career in multiple different settings, uh, and multiple different specialties and within specialties, um, yet we we really lag behind our peer countries in actually trying to approach and solve this problem. Thank you for joining me today.
1: It's been a great conversation. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much.
1: I've been speaking with Dr. Michelle Cohen and Dr. Tara Kieran. To read the article they co-authored, visit cmaj.ca Also, don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud or a podcast app, and let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Executive Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening.